Thank you for listening to this audio message from Christ Fellowship Leesville. We exist to make disciples for the glory of Jesus. We pray God uses this message to help you grow in your walk with Christ. To learn more about Christ Fellowship, please visit us online at ChristFellowshipNC.org. Well, if you would, take your copy of God's Word and turn to Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1, we are here on our second week of taking our journey through uh, the book of Hebrews. Uh, This morning we're going to be focusing on verses 4 through 14, but I'm actually just going to read the entire chapter, read verses 1 through 14 for us this morning to set the stage and the context for the passage that we're going to be looking at together this morning. So let me read Hebrews chapter 1 for us this morning, and then we will, as we do every week, pause and take a moment to pray and ask for the Lord's help. Hebrews chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, Let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever And ever, the scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed, but you are the same, and your years will have no end. And to, the, and to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? Let's pray together. Father, what glorious truths you intend for us to meditate over this morning. Father, I'm thankful that you have spoken, that you have spoken through your Son. And I'm thankful that this morning we just get to meditate on and, 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 and pray through and read through and preach through this glorious passage, exalting the glories of Jesus Christ. So, Father, we, we admit to you right now that, <clears throat> excuse me, we admit to you right now that apart from the work of your Spirit within us, we would not be able to <clears throat> grasp these 
glorious realities, we would not be able to understand them. We would not be able to rest in them. And so, Father, I pray that you would be at work in us by the power of your Spirit to awaken us to these truths this morning. Father, I pray that they would, they would rest heavy on our hearts, that it would bring conviction of sin to us, that it would even encourage us in our walk and give us hope and faith. And so, Father, we pray that you would do the only, uh, only what you were capable of doing for us this morning, and that is that you would be at work in us by the power of your Spirit, shaping us and conforming us to the likeness of your Son for the glory of your name. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> well, as one well-known historical theologian once said, quote, the human heart is a perpetual idol factory. That is truth. In our fallen nature, we are continually drawn to worship false gods, to worship people, to worship possessions, and all kinds of other unworthy objects. I think far too often we picture idol worship in our minds. We picture people falling before a statue or falling before a Buddha or something like that. But we need to be reminded that the Bible itself in Colossians tells us that covetousness is idolatry. Idolatry takes many forms and many shapes. And one of the main purposes of Scripture is to rid your soul of the idols to which it is drawn. And there are two ways the Bible seeks to do that. So first, God's Word shows us that the idols we're tempted to worship are nothing more than mirages that can never satisfy us, that can never uh, bring satisfaction to our souls. They are mirages that will fail us in the end. So just as one of many examples, when we're struggling with the idol of wealth and materialism, right? What does the New Testament tell us? The New Testament reminds us that those things are not going to last into eternity, and that there's only one place we can lay up our treasures where moth and rust will not destroy, and that is in heaven, when we invest in the kingdom of God, right? That's to protect our hearts against the idolatry of material possessions and money. It, the, the, the Bible shows us the foolishness and the failures of these idols that we're tempted to worship. So that's, that's one way the Bible seeks to rid our hearts and souls of, of worship of idols. But the second way, and, and most and perhaps the most important way the scriptures woo us away from idols is by capturing our minds and our affections with the glory, the majesty, the beauty, and the power of Jesus Christ so that all other competitors fade into the background. That's what one of my favorite lines from a well-known song, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus, means when it says, And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. The Bible wants to paint a picture of a majestic Christ as he is so that he shines so brightly in our hearts and in our minds and our affections so that everything else takes a back seat, so that everything else is dim in comparison to him. And you see, this is what the author of Hebrews is seeking to do throughout this book. 
to allow Jesus to shine brightly as he is in our minds and in our hearts, to show us that Christ has no competitors, to show us that there is nothing in your life worth robbing Christ of the attention, the affections, the energy, the commitment, and the worship that he alone deserves. So we saw that in the first three verses that we looked at last week, right? Where it spoke of the the glories of Christ that verse 2, in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, the son whom he appointed to be the heir of all things. All things belong to Christ through whom he created this world. This Christ, this son is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the very universe by the word of his power. And he has made purification of, for sins and he has finished it. It is done. It's complete. And so he has sat down at the right hand of God declaring that it is done and it is finished. And then verse 4 concluded and reminded us that he has become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. You see, in those first three verses, the author of Hebrews was just getting started. He's just getting started. And so what he wants to say to us in these verses this morning is that Jesus Christ is of infinite worth. He is superior over all things. And one of those things that he is superior over are angels. Now, before we get into that, before we even dive into the details of verses 4 through 14, where, where the, the author of Hebrews unfolds the ways in which Christ is more glorious than the angels, before we even get into that, I think we need to just stop and talk about angels for a moment. Because the first century readers who received the book of Hebrews would have had a much more pronounced awareness of angels than we tend to have in our modern culture, right? Let's just be honest. We don't think about the supernatural as often as perhaps the first century Christians would have, and that's, that's to our detriment. And then also, on top of that, our modern culture has some really strange representations of angels. So let's just, let's just talk about that, and then let's talk about what the Bible says about angels and who they are, because if we're going to understand the significance of Christ being greater than angels, more superior than angels, then we need to understand, well, what does the Bible present as angels? Now, no offense to anyone in this room, but, you know, if you happen to have a precious moment angel in your house, that's not what angels look like. Okay? Right? Angels are not cute, chubby cupids flitting about. Right? That's not who angels are, right? In our culture, we tend to have this kind of view of angels that are dumbed down, weak, sometimes even cute figures. And that's not at all who angels are. Like, I mean, I'm even going to date myself a bit here, right? There are, there are popular shows that have been on TV over the years, right, that represent angels. So you've got Highway to Heaven, right? If you young people have no idea what I'm talking about, but you have Highway to Heaven, right? About this angel who was in human form that walked around helping people. Or you had perhaps the more popular, somewhat more recent show, but still a long time ago, of Touched by an Angel, right? It's these, these human forms who are, are angels on earth, and, and they're kind of these conflicted moral agents that are confused sometimes about what the best thing to do is. And, but look, the, the, Bible, the biblical true concept of angelic beings could not be more distinct and distant 
from those representations. So just listen to a few, just a few examples. In Isaiah chapter 6, we see the angelic beings that are called seraphim. And Isaiah 6 says that they have six wings and with two they cover their eyes and with two they cover their feet and with two they fly. And as they surround God's throne and they worship him and they call out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And Isaiah 6, 4 says, as these angels speak, the very foundations of the thresholds of the throne room of God shake at the sound of their voice. Or in, or in 2 Kings chapter 6, Elisha has fled from an army that is chasing him down and wants his life. And Elisha doesn't fear at all. And his servant is trembling in the corner. And he prays and says, Father, open, uh, God, open the eyes of my servant so that he can see what I see. And then God graciously opens the eyes of his servant. And what they see is a mountain surrounded by chariots of fire, horses and chariots of fire, the Lord's servants, angels sent to his rescue and care. Or later in 2 Kings, the army of Assyria is outside the city wall. They are laying siege to God's people. And Hezekiah prays and pleads that God will free them from this siege that is being laid by the Assyrian army that's outside their walls. 185,000 Assyrian soldiers surrounding the city. And in one night, God sends an angel, one. And the next morning, 185,000 Assyrians are dead. I mean, almost every time an angel appears in Scripture, especially we see this in the New Testament, what is the first thing they have to say to people? Do not be afraid. Because <laughs> they're terrifying. They are intimidating and powerful and majestic. And finally, in Revelation, we see a few different astounding scenes of angels. And we, we can't look at all of them, though we're going to reference a few here and, and at least uh, a few later. But just listen to Revelation chapter 10, verses 1 through 3. This is what John sees in his vision. Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven, wrapped in a cloud, with a rainbow over his head, and his face was like the sun, and his legs like pillars of fire. He had a little scroll open in his hand, and he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land. And he called out with a loud voice, like a lion roaring. And when he called out, the seven thunders sounded. Right? That's a majestic being, right? He's so enormous. One foot's in the sea, one foot's on the land, legs of fire, face shining like the sun. His voice is like a roaring lion, and when he speaks, the thunder peals. So John sees that in Revelation 10, which would be overwhelming, majestic, unthinkable. And then Revelation 19, verse 10, John encounters an angel. This angel isn't really described, 
But he's so overwhelmed by the presence of this angel that John, the apostle John who walked with Jesus, John falls down and starts worshiping the angel. But of course the angel responds and says, get up, John. Don't worship me. I'm a servant just like you. Right? This is the majestic presence of angels. I want you to appreciate the grandeur, the majesty that surrounds the presence of angels in the Bible. They are incredibly powerful, supernatural overwhelming beauty and they intimidate mankind just by their presence and their voice causes thunder to peal and foundations to shake. And yet Hebrews chapter 1 verse 4 says Jesus is better. Christ is superior by orders of magnitude compared to these majestic and powerful creatures. You see, the author of Hebrews wants to captivate our hearts and minds. He wants to shut down the idol factory of your heart by displaying the majesty and the glory and the beauty of Jesus Christ for us. So look, that's, that's all by God's grace I want to do for us this morning. I want us to meditate over these verses and I want us to see exactly what the author shows us and the reasons he gives for why Jesus is superior to the angels. And what the author of Hebrews does is he quotes seven different Old Testament passages to prove his point. And I think he gives us, I'm going to summarize his argument in, in four different ways. So four reasons that the author gives us as to why Jesus is superior to the angels. So, so here's the four we're going to run through. Number one, Jesus is the divine son of God. Jesus is the divine son of God. Number two, Jesus is the eternal king. Number three, Jesus is the sovereign creator. And number four, Jesus is the conquering king. So I'll mention those again as we move through if you didn't get those down. But number one, Jesus is the divine son of God. Look with me again at verses 5 and 6. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, Let all God's angels worship him. So there in verse 5, the author of Hebrews is quoting two different Old Testament passages. He first quotes Psalm chapter 2, verse 7, and then he quotes 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 14. And he is looking to these Old Testament passages, and he is saying to you and I that those passages are about Jesus. And those passages declare that Jesus is the Son of God, right? It says it plainly there, you see in verse 5, "'You are my Son.'" And then at the second half of verse 5, I will be to him a father, he shall be to me a son. And in both of these passages, this was declared a thousand years before the author of Hebrews was writing these things. That the Messiah, that the promised one who was to come would be the son of God 
himself. And God, God the Father proclaims this multiple times in the life of Jesus, right? So, so when Jesus is born and, and the birth announcement comes, he declares, God the Father says that Jesus is the Son of the Most High. He is the Son of the Most High. Or at Jesus' baptism, God declares that Jesus is his Son with whom he is well pleased. Or at the transfiguration, the Father declares, this is my Son. Listen to him. Jesus is the divine Son of God. No such proclamations or affirmations were ever made of angels as they being the singular glorified Son of God. Now, the second half of, or sorry, the, the first half of verse 5, but that second line there where it says, Today I have begotten you. That can cause some confusion, right? What is that referring to? Hasn't Jesus always been the Son, the second person of the Trinity? So what does it mean when it says, Today I have begotten you. Well, it, it seems that this phrase is used, so, so Psalm 2 is quoted in a few other places in the New Testament, and it seems that what, what the author is saying here and what Paul says in Romans is that this is a way of God proclaiming that Jesus is his son. So, so just for example, we, we see it in Acts, Acts chapter 13, where, where Luke is writing. Acts chapter 13, verse 33 says this, talking about Jesus. This he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. As also it is written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. So there the, uh, the Luke who wrote uh, Acts is saying, well, in the resurrection of Christ is when God declared him to be a son. But of course, the father declared him to be a son at his birth, at his baptism, at his transfiguration. So it's just a way to designate that God is declaring him to be his son. That's what it means by today I have begotten you. Today I have proclaimed that you, Jesus Christ, are the son of God. So the author of Hebrews leaves no doubt about Christ's position as son. And that position has never belonged to any angel. And verse 6 goes on to tell us that Jesus is the firstborn. Now when the Bible uses the word firstborn to refer to Jesus, it doesn't mean that he was created before any other being because Jesus was not created. He is divine. He is the eternal God. What it means when it says firstborn is that he has the position of priority. He has the position of firstborn, which is just affirming what the author said earlier when he said that he was appointed the heir of all things, right? It is the firstborn who is the heir of all things. And Jesus holds the position of the firstborn of God. And so he is the heir of all things. And when he brings the firstborn who is the heir of all things into the world, God says, verse 6, that all God's angels shall worship him. Now let's not read over this too quickly. Right? The very same angels that surround the throne in Isaiah 6, who shake the foundation with the voice of their worship, these angels are to bow down to Jesus. 
right? The angel who had one foot in the sea and one foot on the land and who spoke like a roaring lion and who called pills of thunder with his voice, the very angel that John was tempted to worship must fall on their face in the presence of Jesus Christ. The angels are called to worship him. This is a clear declaration of the divinity of Jesus Christ because the Bible never calls us to worship something that is not God. And Jesus is worthy of our worship. He is worthy of the worship of all the angelic beings. Let all God's angels worship him. And listen, there's no more glorious picture or scene of angelic worship than Revelation chapter 5. So I actually want us to take a moment and turn there. We, we need to put our eyes on how Revelation 5, how the worship builds to a glorious crescendo. So let's look there at Revelation chapter 5. I'm going to read the entire chapter. It is worth it to help us understand what is meant when the author of Hebrews says, let all the angels of God worship him. Revelation 5, verse 1. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one, no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or look into it. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah the root of David has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. So just pause there. He is both the lion of the tribe of Judah, verse 5, and in verse 6, he is the lamb who was slain. And John sees him with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went, this slain lamb of God, he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures, angels, and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, sang. So here we have four angels along with the elders singing a new song. And they say, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain. And by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God. And they shall reign on earth. Now listen to this. And then I looked. And I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands and thousands. So just pause there. Thousands and thousands of these majestic, 
beings that John was tempted to worship. Thousands and thousands of beings who put one foot in the sea and one foot on the land and have, have pillars of fire for their legs and their face blazes like the sun. Thousands and thousands of seraphim with six wings who shake the foundations by their voice. Thousands and thousands of them are saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven. So we started with four, we went to thousands, and now there is not a silent voice in heaven. Every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. This is the glorious Son of God, who is superior to the angels. This is the Son of God to whom every angel falls down in awe and wonder and worship. Jesus is superior to the angels because he is the divine Son of God. Second, he is superior to angels because Jesus is the eternal King. Look at verses 7 through 9. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the sun, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. So the author here is setting up a contrast between the angels and between the Son of God. So in verse 7, he is quoting Psalm 104, verse 4. Listen, Psalm 104 it just recounts, it recites all the wonders and the varieties of things that God has created. And one of the things that God has created are his angels, his ministers, his messengers. And we saw there are times, like in Elisha's situation, where they appear as fire, right? Elisha was surrounded by horses and chariots of fire. These are created beings. They, they are created for the purpose of serving God. The Son, however is of a different category altogether. And here the author quotes Psalm 45, verse 6. And he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. Now do you catch what is being said here in verse 8? This psalm is about Jesus, and it says, Your throne, O God. This is a direct, clear proclamation that Jesus is God himself, that he is divine, and that Jesus, as the divine Son of God, sits on the throne forever and ever, and his reign will have no end. And it goes on to tell us that he's, he holds a scepter of uprightness. And verse 9 tells us that he loves righteousness and he hates wickedness. I mean, we see that in Jesus' life, right? We see that manifested and as we, as we read the Gospels, how he loves righteousness and he hates wickedness. And the way it manifests itself 
is that, is that God uh, expresses, him, that Jesus expresses himself in care for the downtrodden, in care for those who knew that they were unworthy of his mercy and of his grace. And at the very same time, his righteousness and his justice stands firmly against those who were full of pride and self-righteousness. And ultimately, his, his love of righteousness and his hatred for wickedness is most clearly seen on the cross. He hates wickedness. And so it must be punished. Wrath must be delivered on unrighteousness and wickedness. And yet he longs to forgive his people who come to him in faith, but to forgive without dealing with their sin would be unrighteous. And so the solution is found in Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ is willing to die on the cross because he loves righteousness so much and because he hates wickedness so much. And he does it to save, he did it to save sinners like you and I. You see, there will be no end to the righteous reign of Jesus Christ. As God, he sits on his throne forever and ever. So what God would say to us here in Hebrews is that you don't have to worry about hitching your wagon to Jesus. You can give him everything. Nobody else is going to come and knock him off his throne. You don't have to worry about giving him your loyalty and then him betraying you or someone more powerful coming along. No, you can safely and confidently give your life over to him and to his purposes and you can worship him in full confidence that he is worthy of every breath of praise you and I can cry out to him because he will sit on his throne forever. He is superior to the angels because he is the divine son of God because he is the eternal king, and third, because Jesus is the sovereign creator. Look at verses 10 through 12. Here, the author of Hebrews is quoting Psalm 102, verses 25 through 27. And he says, you, Lord, talking about Jesus, you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of of your hands. Now the author of Hebrews has already basically said this same thing earlier in verses 1 through 3 when he told us that it was through Jesus that the world was created. But here he makes it even more explicit that Jesus is superior to the angels, that he's greater than the angels because Jesus is the one who laid the foundation of the earth in the very beginning and the heavens are the work of his hands. So when you or I read Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, and it says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Jesus was there. Jesus, the Son of God who took on flesh and walked on earth, was present, was active in the creation in the heavens and the earth. He was intimately involved with the formation of the land, and the scattering of the stars. Jesus Christ created billions of galaxies and trillions of stars. He painted the universe with his hands. All of them, all of them are the work of the hands of Jesus Christ. 
And the author of Hebrews says, one day, one day, all of that will perish. But verse 11 says, Jesus will remain. He will be the one left standing in the last day. And what verses 11 and 12 make clear is that this universe isn't just going to, it's not just going to fade out and cool down on its own and just kind of come to an uneventful end. No, it says Jesus is going to be actively involved. Right? What does verse 12 say about Jesus? Like a robe, you, Jesus, will roll them up. Right? Trillions of light years of the expanse of the universe. And when Jesus decides it's time, he's going to roll it all up. Now, I have no idea what that means. Right? That's poetic. I don't know what that means. But it means Jesus is powerful. And he's sovereign. And he will bring it to an end at its appointed time. And when he rolls it all up, when it's all changed, Jesus will have not changed. And he will still be standing. You see, I mean, just reflect on this for a moment. When, when the author of Hebrews says Jesus is superior to the angels, he does not mean Jesus is a little bit better than angels. Right? So if I had to, have you ever seen, you know, scale drawings of the universe or, or the solar system? And, and, and it's amazing how close we are to the sun compared to how far we are from the next closest sun. So, so if, if we were to, to chart out, right, the glory of Christ compared to his creation. So, so you'd have like, you know, bacteria life on the, you know, the very far end, way, way down here, maybe on like that end of the stage right there. And then you'd maybe, you know, take a step up to insects. It'd be kind of down there as well. And then you move up a little bit to mammals or, or bigger, bigger animals. And then there's a pretty big jump from there to us, you know. So maybe we're right here. We're, we're created in the image of God. We, we are significant. You know, Jesus died for us. And so we're, we're separated from the animals. But we're, we're all kind of right here. And then maybe about four steps, five steps the edge of the stage, maybe let's even push it into the parking lot. That's where the angels are, right? They're superior to us in a sense of their glory and their majesty and their power. Jesus is on the other side of the universe on that scale, right? We are infinitely closer to the angels in kind than Jesus is to them. Because Jesus spoke them into existence. Jesus upholds the angels by the word of his power. The angels owe Jesus every uh, moment of their lives in worship. Right? We can't even speak of them in terms of this in the same breath. They're not, they don't even deserve to be on the same chart. Right? So let's not make the mistake of thinking Jesus is just a little bit better. No, he's infinitely superior to angels. He created them. And they worship him. He is Jesus, the sovereign creator. The angels depend on Jesus for their very existence. Jesus depends on no one. He is self-sustaining. 
So Jesus is superior to the angels because he is the divine son of God, because he is the eternal king, because he is the sovereign creator, and finally because he is the conquering king. Jesus is the conquering king. Look at verse 13. And to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Here the author of Hebrews is quoting Psalm 110. Psalm 110 is, the mo- is one of the most quoted and referenced Old Testament passages in the New Testament. In fact, the author of Hebrews himself will reference Psalm 110 about a dozen different times. And then outside of Hebrews, in the rest of the New Testament, Psalm 110 is referenced about another dozen times. So you're talking 20 plus times Psalm 110 is referenced in the New Testament. But here he's pulling out this one section of Psalm 110. And what this says about the Messiah, about the Son of God, this is God speaking to his divine Son, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Now, if you know a little bit about your Bible, you, that might sound vaguely familiar. Because one of the first promises of the Messiah who was to come, the first promise of the Messiah who was to come, we find in Genesis 3.15, Adam and Eve fell in the garden. They disobeyed God. They ate of the fruit. They rebelled against him. God is speaking his curses against them. He's speaking his curses against Satan. And in Genesis 3.15, God tells Satan that the offspring of Eve would one day crush his head under his heel. One day, every single enemy of Jesus Christ will be under his feet. And God will make it so. And Jesus alone... Again, Jesus alone will be the one left standing. He's going to roll it all up. All his enemies are going to be defeated. They're going to be the footstool under his feet. And Jesus will be the glorious one who stands and remains. Therefore, what God is saying to you and I this morning is that we would be foolish to give our lives to anything else. We would be foolish Because Jesus will be the only one left in the end. Therefore, how can we not give all for him? And in verse 14, the author of Hebrews concludes this glorious section with this amazing verse. He's talking about angels and he says in verse 14, Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation. Jesus is superior to the angels and they serve his purposes. These mighty, majestic, powerful, intimidating creatures serve Jesus. He can have them do whatever he wants them to. And the thing that our Savior Jesus Christ assigns for them is to serve you and I. It's to serve us. To ensure that we inherit salvation 
and that we make it safely to the last day. I mean, that's why Jesus says, for example, in Luke 15, 10, I mean, we, sometimes this passage is referenced kind of in passing. I don't think we think too deeply about it, but remember what Jesus says in Luke 15, 10. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Why are the angels celebrating? Because they've done what Jesus has asked them to do. Right? Here's a sinner that they can, who has repented that now they are going to keep watch over and they're going to care for and protect. They are sent to serve this person. So they are rejoicing that here's another one for them to serve for the glory of Jesus Christ. They are the servants of Jesus. He is superior to them and he is sending them out for our sake that we might make it to the last day for the glory of Jesus Christ. Look, this is one of those passages that is intended to capture our affections and sustain our faith. Look, you and I both experience days and even weeks where we just get caught up in the busyness of life. Life starts to just feel like a routine where we're just going through the motions each and every day. And passages like this are meant to wake us up. Right? It's so easy for our lives to be filled with anxiety and, and that's a real struggle. It's one we need to take seriously and our lives to be filled with depression because it can, be, it can be depressing sometimes, right? Just to continue to go through the humdrum of life day in and day out. But I'm telling you, when you're struggling with that, one of the most powerful things you can do is open up to a passage like Hebrews chapter 1 and just be reminded of the glory of Jesus Christ who is for you. Be reminded of the glory of Jesus Christ who has sent these powerful ministering spirits to be at work for you. To be reminded that the glorious divine Son of God, the eternal King, the sovereign creator, the conquering King laid down his life for sinners like you and me. And he, moment by moment, day by day, is praying for you. He is at the Father's right hand, even right now, interceding for you. He is acting on your behalf. He himself has promised to be with us to the end of the age, to never leave us or forsake us. And these powerful created beings that fall down and worship to him, he is sent out to serve you that he might bring you safely to the last day when he arrives and brings his kingdom to earth. Right, what a glorious day that's gonna be. And we're gonna be singing with the angels and feeling the ground quake beneath our feet. Let's pray. Father, your son, Jesus Christ, is glorious. Jesus, you are the glorious one. You are worthy of all praise, of all worship. You are much superior to the angels. And so, Father, I pray that the truth of your word would accomplish its purposes within our hearts this morning, that this glorious picture of Christ would rest in our minds that we would see it with our eyes and that it would capture our attention so that all else grows dim and in the background 
so that we see Christ and we are pulled away from the idols we're tempted to worship. And instead, I pray that you would be at work in your spirit that we might give Christ all the worship that he deserves. Father, I pray that this this accurate, true picture of Christ that the author of Hebrews has pointed for us would sustain us through a thousand trials, that it would carry us to the most difficult moments of our life as we are reminded of the glories of Jesus Christ and that he is for us through his life, through his death, and through his resurrection. And so, Father, I pray that this would be the testimony of our churches and very soon of this single church that our eyes would be fixed on Christ and that we would every moment of our lives, every Sunday of our church, bring glory to him and make him the center of it all because he is much superior to angels and all things. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.